Emil Radelband had every reason to be confident. Confident himself, confident in what he could do. He was a millionaire by the age of 21. He's authored 12 books. He started his own uh, political party. He is a regular television uh, personality and a sought-after speaker. He, he's, done, he's done it all, and he's uh, often uh, done it with great success. But he feels uh, pain in one particular area of his life. He feels the pain of discrimination, uh, the pain of uh, prejudice against him. And the reason for the prejudice is his age. Emil is uh, the ripe old age of 69. He decided to tackle this problem the same way that he has tackled most of the problems in his life, I imagine. He decided to fight it. In fact, he took his case to the court. Uh, somewhere along the line, a doctor, or maybe there was more than one doctor, uh, perhaps made the mistake of telling him that he had the body of uh, someone in their 40s, and he took that very literally, and so much so that he uh, took his uh, uh, grievance uh, to the court and sought to have his uh, age legally changed to 49. Uh, it's too unbelievable. I need to quote from him. This is, uh, this is what he has uh, said. I feel much younger than my age. I'm a young God. I can have all the girls I want, but not after I tell them that I'm 69. I feel young. I'm in great shape. And I want this to be legally recognized because I feel abused, aggrieved, and discriminated against. Fortunately for all of our sanity, the court didn't agree with him. He is still uh, 69. And I think that's good for Radelband as well. I think that's healthy for him. I think it might be a positive step in his life. Because sometimes it will take a closed door to humble us. Sometimes it will take a no to help us to confront some of the issues in our lives. And sometimes it helps that life doesn't unfold according to our plans and according to our terms and according to our schedule. Sometimes those things are a great help to us because while there is disappointment with the one, there is the opportunity for something deeper to take place in our lives. And, and often we're unaware of some of the deeper issues that we are all struggling with. I, I, I read about Emile Radelband and I, and I thought about just how powerful and dangerous a thing pride can be. And while he gives us an extreme example, he gives us the, maybe the far end of what can happen when you just think that you are invincible, I think we're all, we would all recognize that we have the potential and the capacity for similar expressions of pride, but not in such uh, uh, colorful uh, uh, terms as, as he, he showed us. And today's passage looks at a, a Syrian general who also had 
lots of reasons to be confident. Uh, lots of reasons to trust in his own abilities, trust in what he could do and what he could accomplish. But his pride almost kept him from God. His pride almost kept uh, him from receiving the help that he would otherwise have uh, been able to enjoy. And even when God comes and offers healing to him, interestingly, he gets angry because God doesn't offer him the healing in quite the manner that he was expecting. He wants God's blessing on his own terms. And when he doesn't get it, he gets angry and he wants to fight and, and object and, and plead his case in court. I think that there's something that Emile Radelband and this here in general can teach us about our own pride and also about the heart of a God who, in seeking to enter into our circumstances and deal in a very real and powerful way with some of the problems and challenges that we have, can at the same time seek to get under the surface in some of the character issues that we struggle with, and most importantly, come to terms with the glory that is due to him alone. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, in the Pew Bible, in the rack in front of you, it's on page 289. And I'm going to read from verse 8 to 14, and then we're going to just slowly walk through that uh, in, in our uh, time together this morning. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored. You shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This is the word of God. Now, this passage pictures for us, I believe, what, both what God wants to do in our lives as well as some of the things that can derail his working, that can get in the way of the blessing that he seeks to accomplish with us. And the first thing we learn is that God's blessing doesn't come with pride. Often what God will do is deliberately humble a person in order to bless them, because our pride and his blessing can't coexist. Often it is us 
fighting against God, fighting against his preeminence in our lives. It prevents him from doing what he would otherwise do. Now, last time we were introduced to Naaman. If you weren't here, he's a, he's a celebrated Syrian general. He's someone who, through his military conquests, has achieved fame and honor. Uh, he has the eye of the king and has, has been on the receiving end, not only of much riches, but of uh, much honor and fame in his land. His problem, though, is that he has a terrible skin disease. And it has caused all kinds of problems and difficulties for him. But he believes that he can solve it. He seeks help. And, and uh, he, has been, uh, he has been told by a Jewish slave girl that there is a prophet in Israel who can heal him. And so he sets out seeking to find that help, seeking the power to be healed and cleansed. He goes to the, the king of Israel, but as he arrives there, the problem now is that the king of Israel doesn't trust the, the prophet of Israel, doesn't trust the God of Israel, and so he assumes this must be some kind of pretext for war. Why would, why would he be coming asking me for healing, seeking something that uh, I'm unable to give? That's where our passage this morning picks up with uh, Elisha going to the king and trying to set his mind at ease, uh, trying to uh, relieve him of the burden and saying, let him come to me and I will, uh, I, I will deal with him. But in, in, in so doing, we get an interesting insight into how God often views the world. We see it first through the eyes of a prophet, but it gives us a sense of how God views uh, some of our circumstances and uh, how we ought to see them. If we didn't have verse 8, we might have thought this was just a story about healing. Naaman has a skin disease. He goes to the prophet. Some things happen, and the prophet heals him of the skin disease. He no longer has a skin disease. It sounds like just a story about healing. But verse 8 tells us that it's not just a story about healing. Verse 8 shows us that there's more going on. Elisha tells the king, let him come, to, to, come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. That's a strange thing to say because we would have expected him to say, let him come to me that I may heal him of his skin disease. That's his problem. His, he didn't come wanting to know that there's a prophet in Israel. He wanted to be healed of his skin disease. And, and so already we learn, oh, there's, uh, Elisha sees this situation differently. He sees this as something uh, of an opportunity. He wants them to know that there's a prophet in Israel. But even that's confusing because we saw last time that his Jewish slave girl already told him there was a prophet in Israel. He already knew that. In fact, he's come all the, when he, when he makes the trip all of the way to Israel to see the prophet in Israel, the prophet from Israel doesn't even come out to see him initially. So if the main goal was just for him to know there's a prophet in Israel, he already knew it, and when he shows up, he doesn't even come out. So there seems to be something more than going on there. The point seems to be not that Elisha is seeking glory for himself, but he is seeking glory for his God. That he sees this skin disease in this famous general as an opportunity for him to come to recognize 
the one true and powerful God. And that perhaps through him that the Syrian people may come to recognize the glory of that God. That God's power might be on display. God's work might, might take place in this man's life and through him into the lives of many others. That's an important thing because often when we go through a difficulty, we just see it through the lens of this one thing that's going on. I want this skin disease taken away. I want this circumstance in my life that I have no control over. I want it fixed and I want God to fix it. And God enters in and it's not as if he doesn't care about the problem, but he sees that there are other problems. Often there are more complex things going on. Often below the problem there is a deeper problem and it is a more significant problem. Often something more dangerous. In this case, it is Naaman struggling and unknowingly struggling with a problem with pride. But even below the problem of pride is the pride is what the pride is keeping him from, which is recognizing God and and all that He might do in His life. And. I know in my life, when something is not happening, when something is going wrong, when I feel powerless, I can get fixated on that one thing, but often God is, is uh, in, in seeking to minister to me in that area. He is also seeking to do other things in my character, other things in my relationship with him. And not just in my life, but in the lives of other people around me and other people who intersect with me. And so I step back and I see that ultimately God is pursuing his glory. And he is working in my heart that I might recognize him. That I might seek to respond to him. With Naaman, he didn't know the glory of the true God. He, didn't, he knew that there was a prophet in Israel. But he didn't know that there was a prophet in Israel one who had been given power from the Most High God. He didn't know that there was one to whom deserved all glory, one who had every right to have his obedience, his trust, his loyalty, and his allegiance. He'd had so many successes and victories along the way that he'd gotten lost in his own glory. And so God, in responding to his skin disease, says, I will also seek to persuade him of my glory. So in verse 9, Naaman arrives at Elisha's house, and he comes with this impressive entourage of horses and chariots. He's loaded down, as we saw last time, with silver and gold. He's bringing presents. He is arriving with a, uh, a procession that is designed to impress. And Elisha the prophet doesn't even come to the door. If it were you and me, we would be rushing out. We would be preparing all kinds of food. We'd have all of our children lined up in their best outfits. We would do everything in our power to try to give him the reception and the welcome that his status and his obvious uh, 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 impressive credentials would warrant. And Elisha deliberately doesn't go to the door, sends a messenger, and Naaman is furious. 
His pride is wounded. He doesn't, he, he's not used to being treated this way. He's not used to his, his uh, uh, credentials not being recognized this way. And he's wondering, where on earth is the prophet? What's he doing? Where's, what, is he, what is he spending? Who, who could be more important than me visiting him? His pride is wounded. His ego has taken a hit. In verse 11, it says, Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me. Furious. And yet this is the best thing that could have happened to Naaman. And Elisha knew it. He knew that without confronting his pride, the skin disease could be healed and yet a deeper problem would remain. God could powerfully work in his life and yet without the pride being confronted, he would not recognize the power of that God. That that kind of pride would keep him from God. It would keep him from repentance. It would keep him from change. It would ultimately keep him from an eternal salvation. And so Elisha didn't go to the door. He offered him healing, but he confronted his pride. His ego took a hit. Donald Barnhouse once said, Christ sends none away empty but those who are full of themselves. It it is that thing that will get in the way of us receiving from from God because in order to receive God, we need to put him up and recognize that our place is low. We need to recognize that we have nothing ultimately to bring to him, that we owe him, we are not, uh, he is not in our debt. And so being left waiting at the door is sometimes just what we need because we can get fixated on circumstances, we can get caught up on what, with one thing, and we can begin to accuse and judge and critique God and his working in our lives, not realizing that in his grace he has more to bring, more love to show, and a deeper healing that he is seeking to accomplish within us. God's blessing doesn't come with our pride. God's blessing also doesn't come on our terms. We not only want God to bless us, often we want to dictate how God blesses us. We want to dictate who who he can be, how he can act, and how we would like him to respond. But God doesn't work that way. God's blessing doesn't come on our terms. Now we said Naaman had this one problem in his life, this one weakness, this one area where he felt powerless. He wanted to be healed of his skin disease. But he didn't just want to be healed. He wanted to prescribe exactly how it should be done. He wanted to be able to dictate to God uh, the the particulars of uh, the healing. He wanted God to live up to his expectations. So in verse 11, he says, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leopard. He's picturing the prophet coming out in all of his regalia, coming up, coming out as impressive a man as he was, giving him a healing that was as dramatic and spectacular as his rank, his honor, and his status were, would, would, uh, uh, would warrant. Finally, having, having given him the, the healing, maybe he's expecting a puff of smoke. Maybe there will be a light show. He, he, is, 
He's looking for something spectacular. He expects God to act in that way. And I think we do the same thing with God. We want God to be near to us. We want God to work in our lives. But when he works in our lives, we're anticipating and we're expecting that he will be a religiously inclusive, morally progressive, uh, gentle figure who doesn't get involved in too many of the other areas of our lives that we would not want him to interfere in, thank you very much. And, and, we, so, and we put that mold, that expectation on who God is and how he can work. But God doesn't work on our terms. We'd, his blessing doesn't come on our terms. Naaman had grown up in a culture that conditioned him to expect God and his prophets to act in a certain way. He had his view of what a healing should look like and how God should come and intervene and how the blessing might be revealed. That conditioned to put certain expectations on God. And when there was a disconnect with how, how God responded, he got angry. He became furious. And, and so we come from this passage and you ask yourself the question, am I trying to see God on my terms? A am I trying to fit him into my mold, my perception of, of what God is like to, allowed to be like and not be like? A am I trying to bring my vision and picture of, of God to, uh, to him? Or am I, am, am, am I stopping to consider the fact, could it be that my mold is what's the problem? My expectations are what are getting in the way. Could it be that I haven't humbled myself before him to let God be God and receive him as he is? God's blessing doesn't come on our terms. So Naaman thought he could fit God into his mold. He also thought he could adjust God's commands for his own convenience. In verse 12, he's reflecting on Elisha's words to go and wash in the Jordan. And he says, Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? He's figuring, if all that's going to take for this healing is some river water, I've got way better rivers back in Syria. I could have saved myself this whole trip. And you could, hardly, you could hardly fault him because the Jordan River, for most of the year, it is a slow-moving, kind of murky, muddy uh, uh, body of water. Like, if you've got open sores on your skin, you're more likely to con contract a disease than you are to be healed of a disease by heading into the Jordan River. And these two rivers that he's mentioning in Damascus, they were fast-flowing, clean rivers. They were impressive, like Naaman was impressive. These particular rivers got their, their, their size and their strength and their, their purity from the, the snow that melted on Mount Hermon and flowed down and formed them. And he's just trying to size this up and thinking, I think I've got a better strategy than God here. I, I think I got a better idea. And so he takes the generality and he tries to fit in his own specifics. He figures he's got a better idea. At the end of verse 12, for the second time in the passage, it says, Naaman went away in a rage. He didn't get his own way. It was not unfolding according to his strategy, and he was very good at strategy. 
And I wonder whether you've ever done that. Because I seldom meet people who have a real problem with the generalities about God. Most people are pretty, pretty open to, to the broad strokes of the scriptures. There's a, a God who loves you. Not, not much opposition there. There's a God who saves us from our sins. Absolutely, that's great. God's will for us is that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That seems pretty good. God's, God's will is that we love our neighbors ourselves. Like who's, who's up in arms about that? I've, I've never seen a protest about that. We love the generalities of God. It's just we want to fill in the generalities with our own particulars. We, we think we've, if, if, if water is what you need, I'll, I'll deal with my, I'll pick my own river, thank you very much. I will, I will deal with my own particulars at my own convenience. And so we want to fill in the generalities and ignore the particulars of God's commands. Often people are good up to a point until we, we come to that point of filling in the details. For instance, we want the freedom to define who God is. We often, tell, we often have conversations like, well, to me, God is like, and we kind of announce who we think God might be. We want to fill in the details. We don't like God to define right and wrong. We don't like to, God to, to interfere with our sexuality. We don't like God to talk about our finances. We don't like God getting involved in the specifics and the details of our lives. We want him to kind of set some broad strokes and we'll fill in the particulars. We want to maintain our autonomy. And it comes down again to a question of pride. But God's commands are more specific than that. And God's blessing doesn't come on our terms. Now, so far we said that God's plan is more complex than we typically assume. It's seldom just one issue that God is dealing with in our lives, although that's the way we typically see see our lives and God's working in them. So he's working at often a problem underneath the problem. And it may not just be us, it may be multiple people and others that are intersecting with us. We've also seen that God's blessing doesn't come with our pride, doesn't come on our terms. But it also doesn't come with our achievement. Any vision you have for great blessing in your life, where you're the hero of the story, almost certainly didn't come from God. He just doesn't work that way. That is, the the reason that he doesn't work that way is because while he is seeking to bless our lives, he is also seeking to bring glory to himself. And anything that might rob him of his glory and somehow glorify us will will only ruin us in, in making us see this world in ways that are that are warped and, and at, pur- at purposes with who he is and what he has done. So God's blessing doesn't come with our achievement. Why don't you see how this gets drawn out in the passage? At the end of verse 12, Naaman is stormed out in a rage. He's about to head home to Syria with his body unhealed and with his pride wounded. But in verse 13, his servants come to the rescue. This is now the third time in the chapter that people with 
very little status or authority have been used of God to deliver a message of wisdom. And it should, anytime God is doing something again and again and again in a particular way in your life, you kind of stop back and think, oh, I wonder what could be going on here. Well, there was first name and slave girl comes to him and, and she uh, proclaims a message of hope. There's a prophet in Israel. He could heal you. And, and then the messenger of Elisha, the prophet, he comes and he delivers a message of hope, of healing. And now, right at the moment where Naaman's ready to pack it in and go home, storm off in a huff, now it is his servants who come to him and speak sense to him. The servants are used to being humbled. They're used to having a messenger come out and speak to them. They're used to being left at the door. And that gives them the humility to see things without the ego, without pride in the way. And that's why scripture so often speaks of the wisdom that comes with humility. The servants here illustrate Proverbs 11.2, which says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. When pride is in play, I think that I know the right answer. I don't need to look for the right answer. When it's my pride that's in play, I don't need God's help. I don't need your help. I think I've got this figured out. Thank you very much. And so, so often pride is held out to us as a, uh, as a warning. It is warning us of foolish mistakes and foolish decisions that, that bring destruction into our lives. Naaman's pride keeps him from listening to Elisha, but at least he hears his own servants. In verse 13, they say, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will, will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? Naaman has gotten so caught up with his pride that he's not stopping to con consider what an incredible promise this is that he's been given. The prophet said that he'd be healed, he'd be cleansed. But it wouldn't come in response to Naaman's impressive entourage. It wouldn't come because he had brought a, a ton of gold and silver from Syria. It wouldn't come in response to the prophet's amazing performance because he might still be tempted to think, oh, in the same way that I'm an amazing general and so I get victory, he's an amazing prophet, so he brought healing. No, God will work to bring glory to himself so that people know that he's the one to, that deserves the credit. He is the one who deserves our allegiance. He is the one who deserves our thanksgiving. And so Naaman's healing comes as he submits to the word from God. Probably if he'd have been told to climb a high tower, to run through burning coals, or to bring a even bigger donation from Syria, probably he would have been happy to do that. That would have made sense to him because he could have still taken the credit for what took place and not felt like he owed God anything. And pride makes us feel like we don't want to owe God anything. We don't want to owe other people anything. We want to live our lives with our pride intact. And God knows how dangerous that is for each of us and so he confronts us. 
He gives us situations that will force us to deal with that. And the simplicity here of God's healing, the simplicity of God's grace, wounds his pride. It, it confronts it. It's the same thing with salvation. People assume that, that when we, we, we can barge into heaven based on all of the good that we have done, all of the, the righteousness that is ours. We think that God receives people into heaven who have done enough, who have made the grade, who have, uh, have, have outweighed their bad with their good. But the Bible says it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is God's gift, and we only receive it as we humble ourselves and receive it by grace. We receive it through an act of faith and not our performance. Again, it is God seeking to bless us in a way that we can't take credit for, in a way that we recognize all the glory would go to him. All the credit goes to God. He's the one to whom we owe everything. And he doesn't owe us anything in return. That, that is how God brings blessing into our lives. And so there's no room for anyone who thinks it's something they can brag about. Compare these words to the words of uh, U.S. Democratic presidential candidate and former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg uh, was uh, being interviewed before his 50th college reunion. And with his 50th coming up, he was recognizing that a lot of his classmates weren't going to be there because they'd already passed away. And it made him think about his own mortality and, and, and all that was not only behind him, but all that was ahead of him. But despite that moment of vulnerability, he goes from there and he began to talk about his many political achievements. And he said, and I, and I quote, because I couldn't make this stuff up, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. We'd love a salvation life. We would love God to work like that, wouldn't we? Where we get all of God's blessings with all of our pride intact. Where we get to be in control. We get to be in charge. God can help out where we seem to come up short. But even still, even when he does that, we can think, well, of course he did that because he owes me. Look at how amazing a place I've made his world. We would love a salvation like this. And so the Bible from beginning to end just uses one account after another after another to assault our pride and to confront this, this tendency in the human heart to take for ourselves what is due to God. It's amazing to me as I look at this statement that he's not even sure whether God exists. But if he does, he owes him. He's, he's got something coming because 
Just look at his life. This is not your own doing, and it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Has God's grace humbled you? Naaman was humbled. He humbled himself in the Jordan River. As he went down into the water, he must have recognized this is something just doesn't make any sense to me. The only reason I'm doing this is because I think God wants me to do this, and I don't get it. I'm I'm liable to get more sick from this than anything unless he's true, unless he's real, unless he is the God that he says that he is. Has God's grace humbled you like that? As he came out of the water for the seventh time, verse 14 says his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was clean. I love that. Because he's, he's a seasoned war, warrior. His flesh hasn't been like a little child since he was a little child. He's calloused and bruised and worn. He's got scars. And on top of that, the skin disease. And it doesn't just say, and God healed him and took the skin disease away. He doesn't, God doesn't just fix us up and clean us up. He makes us new. He transforms us. And it's a picture of what God wants to do in each of our lives. It's a picture of the healing and the grace that he wants to bring. It's ultimately a picture of the complete cleansing the complete purification, the sanctification. It's a picture of the, the, new, the new life that we receive in Christ and that will be finally fulfilled in eternity. Has God been humbling you? Has he been trying to convince you that it's about his glory and not yours? Trying to convince you that He's the one that's in charge. He's the one that should be in charge and not you. Have you found yourself waiting at the door, unable to show off your impressive entourage, unable to get the credit that you think you're due? God has used repeated failure so many times in my life now. I just, I've come to expect it. I've come to expect that when I set out in a particular direction, thinking this is the right way and thinking, God, bless me in this way, I just just come to expect probably somewhere along the line, God will frustrate that plan, plan and do it in some other way that I can only step back and say, yeah, he did it again. I don't have, I can't take any credit for it. And... And I've just, I've seen that pattern so many times. I just think, I recognize that's a lesson that God seems to keep bringing back to me. Keep trying to convince me. It's about him. It's about him. He's the one. Have you been trying to get God's blessings on your terms instead of his? Trying to write the game book for God trying to tell him not only what your requests are, but what the strategy ought to be? Have you tried to fit God into your mold? 
Or have you ignored the specifics of God's commands and felt that you could pat yourself on the back because you kind of covered the generalities? I think we do that, right? It's no surprise to me that Jesus calls his followers to start the Christian life very similar to the way that God called Naaman to respond and receive his blessing. He calls us to be baptized. Don't have to go to the Jordan River. That's not part of the command that Jesus gave, although that was an important part of how it all started. But he calls us to do that for a number of reasons, because it's humbling, because it doesn't make sense. It's not something that we would have come up with. We just humbly respond to what God has said in his word. He also does that because I think he wants to picture the complete cleansing that he desires to bring about in each of our lives. He wants us to be new, not just reformed. He wants us to be transformed, to be made like little children. He wants us to have new life. And so he invites us to enter into it. There's healing held out for the humble. And there's good news in God's grace. So let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your glory. We confess that we often make it about ourselves, about our ideas, our schedule, our plan, our glory. But we acknowledge it's all about you. It's about your purposes and your ways. It's about your grace and your glory. Father, humble us before you. Help us to live with you in charge. Help us to submit to you. Help us to give you the credit. And lead us into your blessing. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.